highway was filled with danger I felt alone The enemy had singled me out to do me wrong And when he drew near my heart filled with fear But then I heard someone dear calling me to his side and I ran under his wings there he covered me and now I can sing and the enemy he still looks for me but what he can't see is that I'm under my Lord's wings Under His wings Thunder rolled, dark clouds hung low I was out in the storm Shivering in the coldness there No safe retreat from harm and there blew strong winds would this be my end but then I heard my friend calling me to his side and I ran under his wings there he covered me Rages, but in the rock of ages, I'm resting warmly here under my Lord's wings. Under His wings, and there He covered me, and now I can see. What an incredible song, and what a great reminder of how God covers us with His wings, and He is our shelter, and He is our refuge, and perhaps uh, no time, certainly in my lifetime, have we needed to be reminded of that more than right here today as we deal with this COVID-19 virus. Uh, that song actually comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 91, and in verse number 4, the Bible says, "'He shall cover you with His feathers.'" 
and under his wings shall you trust, and he shall be your shield and your buckler. So what a great song, what a great reminder that we are under our Lord's wings. Do you know here we are as we celebrate uh, the Easter season, the resurrection of our Savior, Passover uh, in uh, Jewish history. Uh, the word Passover literally comes from a Hebrew word that means to cover with wings, and it is the protection. The, the picture of protection and of safety and security and refuge. So what a great song. We praise the Lord for that. Uh, I want to share with you this morning here on Easter Sunday uh, a passage of Scripture from Mark chapter number 8, and I want to just simply bring a sermon today entitled, Talk About a Resurrection. Talk About a Resurrection. This is not my talk about a resurrection, but we're going to look at the words of Jesus and see what he had to say about his own personal resurrection. In Mark chapter number 8, and uh, beginning in verse number 27, the Scripture says this, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to, them, to him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he would be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, now listen carefully, after three days would rise again. And he spoke that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So may God add his rich blessings to the reading of his word today as we look at talk about a resurrection. No event in human history has changed the world like the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the grave. Not even close, not even remotely, no other event in all the history of the world can even hold a candle to all that took place and all of the results uh, that took place from the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It truly has altered the course of human history for all eternity, both in this world and in the world to come. The resurrection changed the cross that seemed to be an absolute disaster. It changed it into a triumph. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus changed the eternal destiny of mankind. If it had not been for the resurrection of Jesus, we would be forever separated from God. But because of the resurrection, the Bible says we who were at one time were alienated from Him are now brought together in wonderful reconciliation. So nothing has changed the course or the destiny of human history like the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It changes fear into courage. It changes despair into hope and joy. It changes condemnation into celebration. It changes anxiety into hope and goes way beyond the grave. You see, the resurrection changes people from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. As you read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as you read about His work, His life, His ministry, one of the things that you immediately notice is that the, re the resurrection itself was never witnessed by human eyes. 
Now, the birth of Jesus was certainly ob- um, observable. The uh, baptism of Jesus uh, was observable. There were folk there that day as John the Baptist in the Jordan River uh, would baptize Jesus Christ. Uh, His arrest was visible, his trial, his crucifixion. All of those events in his life were visible and were observable by human witnesses. But do you know when you come to the resurrection, there was no one that witnessed the actual resurrection itself. Now, of course, there were people who witnessed the empty tomb. The New Testament is filled with that uh, in the last chapters of the Gospels as uh, those women and then the disciples came to the tomb and found for themselves the stone had been rolled away and that the tomb was empty and the only remains there were the grave clothes. Certainly there were witnesses to the empty tomb and the grave clothes, but no one actually saw the resurrection event unfold. There were those who witnessed the post-resurrected Christ as he spoke to them. In fact, the book of Acts says that he appeared to many uh, by many infallible or indisputable proofs, that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. So there were those who saw his post-resurrected body and had an encounter with him and even a conversation with him, but no one actually were an eyewitness to the resurrection itself. And because of that, there are some who would use this um, as a point of contention. For whatever reason, God has chosen to hide that specific act from humanity. And many would look at it and say, because of that, it can't be trusted. For example, David Hume, back in the 1700s, said this. He argues against the miracles, including Christ's resurrection, and he says that it could not be possible because it violates all the known working natural laws. Rudolf Bultmann, in talking about the resurrection, said this. An historical fact which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. In an article entitled, The Resurrection Myths About Jesus, R.C. Symes says this, The resurrection transformed Jesus into Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Christ's resurrected body was not a resuscitated physical body, but a new body of spiritual celestial nature. The animal body comes first, then the spiritual body. Paul never says that the earthly body becomes immortal. Jesus's earthly body rotted in the grave. End of quote. Can you imagine anyone who would have the audacity to say something to that effect? That article reminds me of an Indian legend where six blind men, six blind men are trying to describe an elephant by placing their hands upon this elephant. And this is what this says. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to brawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, oh, what do we have here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me it's mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I know, he said. The elephant 
is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, said he. Tis clear the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope, seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I know, said he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Moral, so oft in theological wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and parade about an elephant not one of them has seen." Today, we're going to talk about a resurrection. It is not a mythological uh, assumption. It is not a mythological story. But I want to present to you today that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. It is not only that the birth of Jesus is a historical fact. Not only that the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is historically accurate and a historical fact, but I want you to know that the resurrection of our Savior, right here on Sunday morning as we celebrate this together, it is not a mythological narrative, but it is historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He rose bodily from the grave. Listen, when Jesus rose from the grave, it was a guarantee to you and I who place our faith and our trust in Him that one day we as well will be raised from the grave. First thing I want you to note is that Jesus talked about his crucifixion and then he talked about his resurrection. From right here in Mark's gospel, the eighth chapter, we're going to track it in chapter 9, chapter 10, and watch as it just kind of unfolds and Jesus begins to explain for the first time in the New Testament, by the way, that he's going to go to the cross, that he's going to die. But that's not going to be the end, but there will be a bodily resurrection. So this is what he says as he taught, first of all, about his crucifixion. Listen in verse number 31 of Mark chapter number 8. The Bible says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, listen to this, and be killed, and then after this rise from the dead. So the first thing that he begins to teach them is about his coming crucifixion. Now, Jesus and his disciples are gathered in a place called Caesarea Philippi, right at the headwaters of the Jordan River. We stood there a couple of times when we were able to go uh, to, uh, to Israel, my wife and I, and we had about 40-something people here in our church a couple of years ago uh, that went to, uh, to Israel together, and we were able to stand right there at Caesarea Philippi. It is the very place where the events of Mark chapter 8 would be unfolding. As Jesus would say to his men, who do people say that I am? The reply was, well, some say that, that you are John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of God. And what a great answer that was. So Jesus, in verse 31, begins to teach them about his coming crucifixion that would then be followed by his imminent resurrection. He says, as he talks about his his crucifixion, he begins to teach them. And that word teach in the Greek means it's an ongoing time of teaching. In other words, this is not just something that he just dropped on them and then he let it go. No, but this is almost like a walking seminar. He continued to teach and continued to teach. And it was continuous action. Guys, I'm preparing you. I'm letting you know that soon I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. But do not despair. Do not give up. Do not throw in the towel because just as I am crucified, I will be resurrected. He says it here in chapter 8. Then he says it again in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 31, listen to his words. He, um, the Bible says, For he taught his disciples and he said to them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. Now listen, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So Jesus had already made a similar statement back in chapter 8. He reinforces it now here in chapter number 9, and he says, It won't be long in the Son of Man, I'll be betrayed I'll be rejected, I'll be crucified, but don't worry because I'm going to rise again from the grave. And the Scripture says, can you imagine? The Scripture says they look at each other and they don't understand what he's talking about. In their minds, they're still thinking he's coming to set up an earthly kingdom and they have no idea what he's talking about. And they totally miss the fact that Jesus was talking about his death, his personal death, his personal resurrection, and they just can't seem to wrap their minds around that. Now, I could get cynical about that, but you know, there are times in my life when I'm not real sure what the Lord is up to either, especially during a time like we're facing now. I don't know what all the Lord is up to, what he's planning on doing through all of this and what he's already done and what he'll do in the future, but I do know that God is sovereign and God is in control and God is upon his throne, and I do know that nothing takes God by surprise. I know that God did not cause this COVID-19, but I also know that God, for whatever reason, has allowed this to come into our lives in this season. You remember what he said to the uh, Hebrews as they were, they were uh, leaving Egypt and moving through the wilderness and the, the desert? He said, he said, basically, he said, I've allowed you to wander in this desert these 40 years to test you, to prove you, to see what was in your heart, whether you would serve me or not. So maybe God is just at this time allowing this trial to come into our lives to see how deep our faith really is. For the disciples, they didn't know what he was up to. They didn't know what he was, what he was talking about. So he reinforces it again. Over in chapter number 10, verse 33, he says these words, he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will scourge him. They will spit upon him. Listen, and they will kill him. How much more vivid can he get? And then he says, And the third day he shall rise again. 
In fact, in the context of chapter 10, Jesus doesn't want them to miss what he is saying. So he takes a little child, sets him on his lap, and he says, in order to receive the kingdom of God, you've got to be like one of these little children. And when he tells them that they've got to accept what he's talking about, again, it goes right over their head, and they were so unspiritual and self-centered and sanctimonious that they were sitting around saying, Lord, whenever you establish your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand? Or which one of us is going to be on your right hand? And they turned everything that he said around and made it about, made it about themselves. So Jesus teaches this same truism in chapter 8, then again in chapter 9 and chapter 10, as he talks about his crucifixion and his resurrection. So first of all, he says, guys, I am going to the cross and I am going to die. I don't know everything that Jesus said that day. In fact, the Bible says if everything that Jesus did were recorded that all the books in the world couldn't contain them. What we have is a thumbnail sketch. I don't know what all Jesus said in his teaching about his crucifixion. Perhaps as he taught them, he took them on a tour of the Old Testament and he explained to them Isaiah 53 that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. How that was a prophecy given some 750 years earlier, but was a prophecy about him that would now be fulfilled in their lives. Perhaps he explained to them Isaiah 50, another prophecy about him that said, I offered my back to those who beat me, My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And maybe as he unfolded the Old Testament to his men, he was saying to them, guys, Isaiah wrote about it time and time again. I am the one, the Messiah, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to suffer and be rejected, and I'll ultimately be crucified. Perhaps he talked to them about Psalm 22. I am poured out like water And all of my bones are out of joint. Guys, that's a prophecy about me and what's going to happen to me at crucifixion. You see, Mark was the first gospel written. And we would read for the first time these men hearing what is going to happen to Jesus. That he is going to drink of the wrath, the cup of God's wrath. And he is going to appropriate into his life the full judgment of God's wrath for the sins of the world. When I read the New Testament, I am amazed about how the angels constantly gave attention to Jesus. Do you know when he was born in Bethlehem's manger, angels made the appearance and they said, Fear not, for I bring unto you good tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Angels accompanied his birth. When Jesus was driven into the wilderness and tempted by Satan, the Bible says that after all of the horrific temptations and after all of the 40 days of fasting, that angels came and they ministered to him in his time of need. When he fell beneath the olive trees in Gethsemane's garden and prayed so earnestly that his sweat became as great drops of blood, angels were present there to once again minister to him. Yes, angels attended every aspect of Jesus' life. But do you know, when he was crucified, not one single angel came to help him. 
While his executioner sat down at the cross and they gambled for his robe and they wagged their heads and clucked their tongues and said, look at this man, the king of the Jews. And they humiliated him and hurled insults at him. Not a single angel came to his rescue. And God would turn his back on Jesus and allow Jesus to die all alone upon the cross of Calvary. So at his birth, angels were present. At his temptation, angels were present. When he was in Gethsemane's garden, angels were present. But upon the cross, no angel was allowed to come and to help him and to rescue him. No angels were allowed to attend to him. They were restrained by God the Father until Good Friday was complete. And you know, you don't see the angels really again until Easter Sunday when the Bible says that the stone was rolled away from the entrance tomb and the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. So as Jesus was teaching his men, he teaches them, guys, there's going to be a crucifixion. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And then he follows that up by saying, not only will there be a crucifixion, but there's going to be a resurrection. Even though he told them that he's going to suffer and die, he said, I'm still going to rise. That beyond the cross, there will be a future. Beyond the cross, beyond Good Friday, Easter Sunday would come. And he's going to pass through hell, conquer death, hell, and the grave. And he would be raised as a victorious Lord and Savior of the universe. But one of the things that fascinates me about this passage of Scripture is the disciples never probe about the resurrection. They're stuck on the crucifixion. In fact, in verse number 31 of chapter number 8, uh, Jesus says, as he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, he says, after three days, rise again. I would have expected them to say, what do you mean rise again? What are you talking about that is there going to be some kind of a physical resurrection? Now listen, that word resurrection comes from a Greek word that literally means to stand up. To stand up. How do we define death? Well, we define death as the separation of the soul from the body. When the soul leaves the body, all that remains is what? The remains. That's why we call the body the remains. Our body ceases to live once the soul is gone. So what Jesus is saying to his men is, I am going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. And when I die, listen, my soul will leave my body, and my body will be lifeless. But it will not remain lifeless. It will rise again when my soul returns to be reconstituted with my body and I will be raised in a physical body. And the disciples never one time probed that. You can search the New Testament and you'll not find one single verse, not one single word where they ask him to elaborate on that statement. It's as though when he said to them, I'm going to be crucified, it's like time stood still and that's all they could focus on. What do you mean you're going to be crucified? We had plans. We were going to rule and reign at your side when you conquered Rome and when you led this military uh, army to defeat Rome and overthrow uh, the Caesars. We're going to rule and reign right with you. What do you mean crucified? And it's as though they couldn't get past the crucifixion 
and see the resurrection. They are so crestfallen that Jesus is going to die that they can't imagine a scene where he was not with them. In fact, in verse number 32, the Bible says that Peter began to rebuke him. The Scripture says Peter took him and he began to openly rebuke him, saying, Lord, you're not going to go die. Lord, we're going to be with you. We're not going to let that happen to you. You see, earlier in this chapter, just as Jesus had given sight to the blind man as an object lesson to open your spiritual eyes, you would think that Peter would have got that. Peter was still spiritually blinded, that he couldn't see the glory of the resurrection. He was only focused upon the horror of the crucifixion. You know, sometimes trouble has a way of doing that for us, doesn't it? Difficulty and tragedy and disappointment and hardship become so smothering that if we're not careful, we focus on the trouble as if Jesus is still on the cross. If we're not careful, we focus on the bad news so much that we forget, listen, that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive and that he's conquered death and hell and the grave. And he's not on the cross today. He's not in the tomb today. He is very much alive. But for Peter and the others, they just somehow could not get their mind off of the horrors of Good Friday to believe that Easter Sunday would come. Do you know when you do read the resurrection story, all the Gospels, for example, talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But when you read the Gospel story or the resurrection story from Luke's Gospel in chapter number 24, when the ladies go visit the tomb and they discover the stone's been rolled away, the body's not there, they come back to the disciples and they say, listen, we've been there, we saw the tomb, his body's not there. Now listen to what the, what the disciples said. Their words seemed like nonsense. Their words seemed to them as idle tales because they never, never thought that a resurrection was possible. You see, for the Jewish people primarily, they were thinking about the resurrection in terms of the resurrected of Israel's national power, not a personal bodily resurrection. So even as Jesus would teach them Earlier in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, that a resurrection was coming, they couldn't get past the crucifixion. How many still live in Good Friday, still live in the bad news, still live on the negative, still live that things are bad and things are going to get worse? Still live seeing the glass half empty. Still live filled with worry. Still live filled with anxiety. Still live, live filled, filled with fear. I want you to know today, that doesn't come from the Lord. Listen, anything that's negative that enters our lives, that comes from the enemy whom the Bible says wants to kill and steal and destroy. And everything that the devil says is a lie. But sometimes he gets us so fixed on the negative, on the, the horror of crucifixion, that we can't see the glory of the resurrection and the empty tomb. There was a, a Greek playwright by the name of Aeschylus. He died 400 years before Christ, and he writes about how kind of the, the idea of how rudimentary it was to think that a person would come back from the grave. And this is what he says. Once a man has died, the dust soaks up his blood. There is no resurrection. Did you hear that? 
Once a man dies and the ground soaks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Many ancient writers had that same perspective that there's nothing after death. That the best that a person could hope for is just being remembered as a good person. But Jesus talked about his resurrection over and over. Not just his crucifixion, but also his resurrection. And not only here in Mark 8, 9, and 10. There were other times that Jesus spoke to the masses and he said, You destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And their response was, how are you going to rebuild this temple in three days when it took 46 years to build this temple? But listen, Jesus was talking about his body, his resurrection. He also talked about it when the scribes and the Pharisees said, Lord, give us a sign. And Jesus says, as Jonah reaches all the way back in the Old Testament, he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, even so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And he tells them, That he's going to die, but also that there will be a resurrection. Several years ago, at the height of Desert Storm, Ruth Dillow received a very sad message from the Pentagon. And the message stated that her son Clayton had stepped on a landmine in Kuwait and had been killed. And Ruth would later write these words. I cannot begin to describe my grief and shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days, I just wept. I expressed my anger and loss. And for three days, people tried to comfort me, but nothing worked. The loss was simply too great. But three days after she had received that initial report that her son was killed, she received a telephone call. And when she answered that phone, the voice on the other end said, Mom, it's me, Clayton, and I'm alive. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess we would say, the original information was wrong and that her son really had not been killed in battle. And Ruth would go on to say, I could not believe it at first. She said, but then I recognized his voice and I realized that he really was alive. And she said, I laughed and I cried and I felt like turning cartwheels because I, my son, whom I thought was dead, was actually alive. You see, can you imagine that first Easter Sunday when the disciples had thought all of their hopes and dreams had been lost? When they thought they had nothing to go back to, what was Matthew to do? Go back to unroll his tax ledgers and his studies? Peter and James and John go back to their fishing nets that they had dropped earlier when they chose to follow him? What would they go back to? Can you imagine the transformation in their lives when they make it to that empty tomb and they see that Jesus indeed has really risen from the grave? I guess like Ruth, they too would have wanted to turn cartwheels. Knowing that Jesus, who was dead, is very much alive. Do you know the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity? If Jesus has not risen from the grave, then the Bible says we have no hope. If he has not risen from the grave, that all that we do in the name of Christ and for his kingdom is void and foolish. But listen, Jesus is very much alive today. He said this to his disciples early on. 
in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to be crucified. That's going to happen. But don't lose hope. I am going to rise again the third day. The problem for the disciples was they couldn't get past the crucifixion and dream and hope and look forward to a better day of a resurrection. So where are you living today on Good Friday or Easter Sunday? Living in the bad news of a crucifixion or the good news of resurrection and the conquering of the grave? Well, Jesus talked about his crucifixion. He also talked about his resurrection. But finally, I want you to note that he talked about his vindication. He talked about his vindication. Listen to what he says in verse number 13. As he taught them that the Son of Man, he says, listen, must suffer many things. That he would be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests. That's the religious leaders of his day. Jesus, and he talks about his vindication. He is saying that, listen, I am going to suffer at the hands of cruel people who will make false accusations toward me. I am going to suffer under the hand of individuals, and I will be unfairly condemned. I will be accused of blasphemy. And I will be crucified as an innocent man. Do you know when he hung up on the cross, there was a sign placed over his head, the king of the Jews. Oh, it was written in Greek and in Hebrew, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin. So if anybody at all during that day would walk by and see the crucifixion scene, would read that sign, the king of the Jews. In every way, he was portrayed as a charlatan, as a false prophet, as a phony, one who came to, to uh, do away with the law of God and, and one who would come to, to defeat the Caesar and remove the Roman government. In every way, he was portrayed as an enemy of the state. But listen, of all that he endured, of all that he suffered, of all that he went through, Jesus was absolutely vindicated of everything brought against him on Easter Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out in resurrected power and life. Do you know, as you read the New Testament, you will find that the New Testament never tries to prove, never tries to prove the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, it describes the transformed lives of Jesus' followers. It describes the transformed lives of Jesus' followers who at one moment were cowering in fear, but in the next moment, after the resurrection, they were so changed that they go about the whole region and they're telling people about Jesus and his crucifixion, how he suffered, how he was rejected, how he bled, how he died. How he bore the sin debt for the entire world. How his lifeless body was wrapped in linen cloths and laid in a tomb. And a stone blocked the entrance of that tomb. But on Easter Sunday, this is what they were all sharing. That on Easter Sunday, that Jesus came out of that tomb very much alive. Defeated death and hell and crushed Satan's head right there on Easter Sunday. They were all teaching what we now call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel they taught then. It is the same gospel that you and I teach today, that in his crucifixion, 
Jesus bore the sin debt of every person in the world. But in his resurrection, it was as though God was totally satisfied with the price that had been paid on the cross of Calvary, brought his dear son back to life, and in so doing, Jesus was vindicated of every ill word ever spoken, that was ever spoken against him, every ill action that was, ever, that was ever portrayed against him. He was absolutely vindicated when he conquers the last enemy, which is death. You know, as a, as a pastor, I deal with death on a regular basis. And it would be okay with me if I never had to preach another funeral. If I never had to stand beside another open casket with a family whose heart is broken or go to the cemetery with a family and watch their sad faces as they turn and walk away from that cemetery with an ache in their soul. But I know that I'll have to do that because I'm a dying man living on a dying planet surrounded by dying people. Is there any hope to that death? Absolutely, and that hope is in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He came out on Easter Sunday, and now death has been killed. Death has been defeated for all of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. He died on Good Friday, but he was very much alive on Easter Sunday. The late Dr. James Kennedy shared the story about how many centuries men and women in Western Europe, or men and women in, uh, in Europe looked out on the Western Sea that we call now the Atlantic Ocean, and they saw the sun glittering upon the surface of the waters, and they wondered they wondered if there was anything on the other side of that large body of water. And the most brilliant people of that day said, there is nothing beyond that water. And if you go too far, you'll fall off the edge because there's nothing there. In fact, inscribed on the coat of arms of the nation of Spain was its national motto, Ni plus ultra, meaning there's nothing beyond Nothing beyond. Well, one day, Columbus gets in a boat and he begins to sail to see what is beyond as far as the eye can see. And people waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited for him to return to see if there would be anything on the other side. And finally, after a long while, those sails began to appear and the people were elated as they saw Columbus making his way back toward the land and he was able to announce, oh, there is something beyond. And it is a beautiful land. It is a glorious land paradise that is rich beyond all your dreams and the king of spain changed the motto of that land until it reads as it does today plus ultra meaning there is more beyond all through human history dr kennedy writes people stood in a cemetery by an open grave and they watched the body of their loved one lowered into the grave and they wondered is there any hope beyond and the Lord Jesus breathed his breath, last breath on Calvary's cross, sailed off to the setting sun, descended to the blackness of the pit, and sailed off the edge of the world to crash into hell, and people waited expectantly. And finally, on resurrection morning, as the sun arose in the east, the Son of God stepped forth from the grave and declared, there is something beyond. 
There is paradise beyond your greatest expectation. And there awaits your heavenly Father waiting with outstretched arms to wipe away every tear from your eye. So as we talk about a resurrection, it's part of the larger story. The crucifixion, then the bodily resurrection, and then the ultimate vindication as Jesus comes out of that grave announcing, because I live, you shall live also. If you're under the sound of my voice and you have never in all of your life made your decision to follow Christ, you may be thinking, Pastor Darrell, how do I do that? How do, I, how do I make Easter real for me? Well, first of all, repent of your sins. It just simply means I'm going to turn away from the sin of my life. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're a sinner today, listen, you're in good company because everybody's a sinner. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You just have to admit that to God and be willing to turn from that. Secondly, ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And if you'll just simply say, God, I, I agree with you that I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, and I ask you to forgive me. Would you do that? That's part of the gospel. And then finally, call on God to save you. The Bible says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So right here today, you can repent of your sins and tell God you're sorry. Right here today, you can ask God for His forgiveness. And right here today, you can call on God to save you. If you've never done that, I would love to talk to you about that. You can, you can email me at highlandparkfamily.com, and I'd love to talk to you about where you stand with Jesus, who is not dead, but is very much alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the victory we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the stone was rolled away, that the tomb was vacated, and that Jesus lives forever and ever. Lord, we know one day is going to return to receive us to yourself. We are anxiously looking forward to that day. Bless those under the sound of my voice. And Father, we want you to know we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.